Chapter Seventeen, Part One of Pilgrimage to Al Medina and Mecca. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter Seventeen, Part One of Personal Narrative of a Pilgrimage to Al Medina and Mecca by Richard Francis Burton. An essay towards the history of the Prophet's Mosque. Ibn Abbas has informed the world that when the eighty individuals composing Noah's family issued from the ark, they settled at a place distant ten marches and twelve parasangs. In oriental geography, the parasang still, as in the days of Pliny, greatly varies from fifteen hundred to six thousand yards. Captain Franklin, whose opinion is generally taken, makes it, in his tour to Persia, a measure of about four miles. Preface to Ibn Hokul by Sir Gore Owsley. End of footnote. 36 to 48 miles, from Babel or Babylon. There they increased and multiplied, and spread into a mighty empire, at length under the rule of Numrud, Nimrod, son of Canaan, Canaan, son of Ham. They lapsed from the worship of the true God, a miracle dispersed them into distant parts of the earth, and they were further broken up by the one primeval language being divided into seventy-two dialects. A tribe called Aulad Sam bin Nu, the children of Shem, or Amalika and Amalek, footnote 2. Monsieur C. de Percival, Essay sur l'histoire des Arabes avant l'Islamisme, makes Amlak, son of Laud, Lud, son of Shem, or according to the others, son of Ham. That learned writer identifies the Amalek with the Phoenicians, the Amalekites, the Canaanites, and the Hyksos. He alludes also to an ancient tradition which makes them to have colonized Barbary in Africa. End of footnote. From their ancestor Amlak bin Akfakshad bin Sam bin Nu, was inspired with a knowledge of the Arabic tongue. Footnote three. The Dabistan al-Mazahi relates a tradition that the Almighty, when addressing the angels in command, uses the Arabic tongue, but when speaking in mercy or beneficence, the Deri dialect of Persian. End of footnote. It settled at Al-Madinah and was the first to cultivate the ground and to plant palm trees. In course of time, these people extended over the whole tract between the seas of Al-Hijaz, the Red Sea, and Al-Oman northwestern part of the Indian Ocean, and they became the progenitors of the Javabira. Footnote four. These were the giants who fought against Israel and Palestine. End of footnote. Tyrants or giants of Syria, as well as the Pharaina pharaohs of Egypt. Footnote five. In this wild tradition we find a confirmation of the sound geographical opinion which makes Arabia une des pépinières du genre humain, Monsieur Jomard. It must be remembered that the theatre of all earliest civilization has been a fertile valley with a navigable stream like Sindh, Egypt, and Mesopotamia. The existence of such a spot in Arabia would have altered every page of her history. She would then have become a centre, not a source of civilization. Strabo's Malothus River in Al Yaman is therefore a myth. As it is, the immense population of the peninsula, still thick even in the deserts, has, from the earliest ages, been impelled by drought, famine, or desire of conquest, to emigrate into happier regions. All history mentions two main streams which took their rise in the wilds. The first set to the northeast through Persia, Mekran, Baluchistan, Sindh, and the Afghan mountains, as far as Samarkand, Bokhara, and Tibet. The other, flowing towards the northwest, passed through Egypt and Barbary into Etruria, Spain, the Isles of the Mediterranean, and southern France. There are two minor immigrations chronicled in history and written in the indelible characters of physiognomy and philology. One of these set in an exiguous but perennial stream towards India, especially Malabar, where, mixing with the people of the country, the Arab merchants became the progenitors of the Mopla race. 
the other was a partial emigration, also for commercial purposes, to the coast of Berbera in eastern Africa, where, mixing with the Gala tribes, the people of Hazramaut became the size of the extensive Somali and Swahili nations. Thus we have from Arabia four different lines of emigration, tending northeast and southeast, northwest and southwest. At some future time I hope to develop this curious but somewhat obscure portion of Arabian history. It bears upon a most interesting subject, and serves to explain, by the consanguinity of races, the marvellous celerity with which the faith of al-Islam spread from the pillars of Hercules to the confines of China, embracing part of southern Europe, the whole of northern and a portion of central Africa, and at least three-fourths of the continent of Asia. End of footnote. Under these amaleks such was the age of man that during the space of four hundred years a beer would not be seen, nor keening be heard in their cities. The last king of the Amalek, Arkham bin al-Arkham, footnote 6. Of this name, Monsieur de Percival remarks, Le mot Arkham était une designation commune à tous ces rois. He identifies it with Rekham, numbers 31-8, one of the kings of the Midianites, and recognizes in the preservation of the royal youth the history of Agag and Samuel. End of footnote was, according to most authors, slain by an army of the children of Israel sent by Moses after the Exodus. Footnote 7 and some most ignorantly add, after the entrance of Moses into the promised land. End of footnote. With orders thoroughly to purge Mecca and Al-Medina of the infidel inhabitants. All of the tribe was destroyed, with the exception of the women, the children, and a youth of the royal family, whose extraordinary beauty persuaded the invaders to spare him pending a reference to the prophet. When the army returned, they found that Moses had died during the expedition, and they were received with reproaches by the people for having violated his express command. The soldiers, unwilling to live with their own nation under this reproach, returned to Al-Hijaz and settled there. Muslim authors are agreed that after the Amalek, the Benu Israel ruled in the Holy Land of Arabia, but the learned in history are not agreed upon the cause of their emigration. According to some, when Moses was returning from a pilgrimage to Mecca, a multitude of his followers, seeing in El Medina the signs of the city which, according to the Torah, or Pentateuch, should hear the preaching of the last prophet, settled there, and were joined by many Badawin of the neighbourhood who conformed to the law of Moses. Ibn Sheba also informs us that when Moses and Aaron were wending northwards from Mecca, they, being in fear of certain Jews settled at El Medina, did not enter the city. Footnote 8. In those days, we are told, the Jews, abandoning their original settlement in Al-Gaba, or the lowlands to the north of the town, emigrated to the highest portions of the Medina plain on the south and east, in the lands of the neighbourhood of the Kuba Mosque. End of footnote. But pitched their tents on Mount Ohod. Aaron being about to die, Moses dug his tomb and said, Brother, thine hour is come, turn thy face to the next world. Aaron entered the grave, lay at full length, and immediately expired, upon which the Jewish lawgiver covered him with earth, and went his way towards the promised land. Footnote 9. When describing Ohod, I shall have occasion to allude to Aaron's dome, which occupies the highest part. Few authorities, however, believe that Aaron was buried there. His grave, under a small stone cupola, is shown over the summit of Mount Hor in the Sinaitic Peninsula, and is much visited by devotees. End of footnote. Abu Huraira asserted that the Benu Israel, after long searching, settled in Al-Medina, because, when driven from Palestine by the invasion of Bukht al-Nasa, Nebuchadnezzar, they found in their books that the last prophet would manifest himself in a town of the towns of Arabia. Footnote 10. It must be remembered that many of the Muslim geographers derive the word Arabia from a tract of land in the neighbourhood of Al-Medina. 
End of footnote. Called Zat Nakal, or the place of palm trees. Some of the sons of Aaron occupied the city. Other tribes settled at Kaba. Footnote 11. Kaba in Israel is supposed to signify a castle. Derbelo makes it to mean a pact or association of the Jews against the Muslims. This fort appears to be one of the latest as well as the earliest of the Hebrew settlements in Al-Hajaz. Benjamin of Tudela asserts that there were 50,000 Jews resident at their old colony. Bartema in AD 1703 found remnants of the people there, but his account of them is disfigured by fable. In Niebuhr's time, the Beni Kaba had independent sheikhs and were divided into three tribes, viz. the Benu Masad, the Benu Shahan, and the Benu Aniza. This latter, however, is a Muslim name who were isolated and hated by the other jews and therefore the traveller supposes them to have been karates in burkhard's day the race seems to have been entirely rooted out i made many inquiries and all assured me that there is not a single jewish family now in kaba it is indeed the popular boast in al-hijaz that with the exception of jeddah and perhaps yambu where the prophet never set his foot there is not a town in the country harbouring an infidel this has now become a point of fanatic honour but if history may be trusted it has become so only lately End of footnote. and in the neighbourhood building utum or square flat-roofed stone castles for habitation and defence they left an order to their descendants that Muhammad should be favourably received, but Allah hardened their hearts into their own destruction. Like asses, they turned their backs upon Allah's mercy. Footnote 12. When the Arabs see the ass turn tail to the wind and rain, they exclaim, Lo, he turneth his back upon the mercy of Allah. End of footnote. And the consequence is that they have been rooted out of the land. The Tariq Tabari declares that when Bukh al Nazar, footnote 13, Monsieur C. de Percival quotes Judith 2.13.26 and Jeremiah 49.28 to prove that Holofernes, the general of Nebuchadnezzar I, laid waste the land of Midian and other parts of northern Arabia. End of footnote. After destroying Jerusalem, attacked and slew the king of Egypt, who had given an asylum to a remnant of the house of Israel, the persecuted fugitives made their way to Al-Hijaz, settled near Yasrib, Al-Medina, where they founded several towns, Kaba, Fadak, Wadi al-Subu, Wadi al-Kura, Kureza, and many others. It appears, then, by the concurrence of historians, that the Jews at an early time either colonized or supplanted the Amalek at Al-Medina. At length the Israelites fell away from the worship of the one God, who raised up against them the Arab tribes of Aus and Khazraj, the progenitors of modern Ansar. Both these tribes claimed a kindred origin, and Al-Yaman as the land of their nativity. The circumstances of their emigration are thus described. The descendants of Yarab bin Khartan bin Shalak bin Akfarkshad bin Sam bin Nu, kinsmen to the Amalek, inhabited in prosperity the land of Saba. Footnote 14. Saba in southern Arabia. End of footnote. Their sway extended two months' journey from the dyke of Mareb. Footnote 15. The erection of this dyke is variously attributed to Lukman the Elder, of the tribe of Ad, and to Saba bin Yashjab. It burst, according to some, beneath the weight of a flood. According to others, it was miraculously undermined by rats. A learned Indian sheikh has mistaken the Arabic word jurad, a large kind of mouse or rat, for jarad, a locust, and he makes the wall to have sunk under a bari malak, or weight of locusts. No event is more celebrated in the history of pagan Arabia than this, or more trustworthy, despite the exaggeration of the details. The dike is said to have been four miles long by four broad, 
and the fantastic marvels which are said to have accompanied its bursting. The ruins have lately been visited by Monsieur Arnaud, a French traveller who communicated his discovery to the French Asiatic Society in 1845. End of footnote. Near the modern capital of Aliaman, as far as Syria, an incredible tales are told of their hospitality and of the fertility of their land. As usual, their hearts were perverted by prosperity. They begged Allah to relieve them from the troubles of extended empire and the duties of hospitality by diminishing their possessions. The consequence of their impious supplications was the well-known flood of Iram. The chief of the descendants of Khartan bin Saba, one of the ruling families in Al-Yaman, was one Amru bin Amin Ma al-Sama. Footnote 16 Ma al-Sama, the water, or the splendour of heaven, is, generally speaking, a feminine name among the pagan Arabs. Possibly it is here intended as a matronymic. End of footnote. Called al-Muzakiyah, from his rending in pieces every garment once worn, his wife Taraka Himyariah, being skilled in divination, foresaw the fatal event, and warned her husband, who, unwilling to break from his tribe without an excuse, contrived the following stratagem. He privily ordered his adopted son, an orphan, to dispute with him, and to strike him in the face at a feast composed of the principal persons in the kingdom. The disgrace of such a scene afforded him a pretext for selling off his property, and, followed by his thirteen sons, all born to him by his wife Tarika, and others of the tribe, Amru emigrated northwards. The little party, thus preserved from the Romanian deluge, was destined by Allah to become the forefathers of the auxiliaries of his chosen apostle. All the children of Amru thus dispersed into different parts of Arabia. His eldest son, Salaba bin Amru, chose al-Hijaz, settled at al-Medina, then in the hands of the impious Benu Israel, and became the father of the Aus and Khazraj. In course of time, the newcomers were made by Allah an instrument of vengeance against the disobedient Jews. Of the latter people, the two tribes Kuraiza and Nazir claimed certain feudal rights well known to Europe. Upon all occasions of Arab marriages, the Aus and the Khazraj, after enduring this indignity for a time, at length had recourse to one of their kinsmen who, when the family dispersed, had settled in Syria. Abu Jubaila, thus summoned, marched an army to al-Medina, avenged the honour of his blood, and destroyed the power of the Jews, who from that moment became Mawali, or clients to the Arabs. For a time the tribes of Aus and Khazraj, freed from the common enemy, lived in peace and harmony. At last they fell into feuds and fought with fratricidal strife until the coming of the Prophet effected a reconciliation between them. This did not take place, however, before the Khazraj received, at the Battle of Buas, about A.D. 615, a decided defeat from the Aus. It is also related, to prove how al-Medina was predestined to a high fate, that nearly three centuries before the siege of the town by Abu Jubaila, the Toba al-Azka, footnote 17, this expedition to al-Medina is mentioned by all the pre-Islamatic historians, but persons and dates are involved in the greatest confusion. Some authors mention centuries before the siege of the town by Abu Jubaila, the Toba al-Azka, footnote 17. This expedition to al-Medina is mentioned by all the pre-Islamatic historians, but persons and dates are involved in the greatest confusion. Some authors mention two different expeditions by different Tobas, others only one, attributing it differently, however, to two Tobas, Abu Kab in the 3rd century of the Christian era, and Tabu al-Aska, the last of that dynasty, who reigned, according to some, in AD 300, according to others in AD 448. 
Monsieur C. de Percival places the event about A.D. 206, and asserts that the Aus and the Khazraj did not emigrate to Al Medina before A.D. 300. The word Toba or Taba, I have been informed by some of the modern Arabs, is still used in the Himyaritic dialect of Arab to signify the great or the chief. End of footnote. Marched northward at the requisition of the Aus and Khazraj tribes, in order to punish the Jews, or, according to others, at the request of the Jews to revenge them upon the Aus and Khazraj. After capturing the town, he left one of his sons to govern it, and marched onwards to conquer Syria and al-Iraq. Suddenly informed that the people of al-Medina had treacherously murdered their new prince, the exasperated Toba returned and attacked the place, and, when his horse was killed under him, he swore that he would never decamp before raising it to the ground, whereupon two Jewish priests, Kaab and Asaid, went over to him and informed him that it was not in the power of man to destroy the town, it being preserved by Allah, as their books proved, for the refuge of his prophet, the descendant of Ishmael. Footnote 18 Nothing is more remarkable in the annals of the Arabs than their efforts to prove the Ishmaelitic descent of Muhammad. At the same time, no historic question is more open to doubt. End of footnote. The Toba Judaized. Taking four hundred of the priests with him, he departed from al-Medina, performed pilgrimage to the Kaaba of Mecca, which he invested with a splendid covering. Footnote 19. If this be true, it proves that the Jews of Al-Hijaz had in those days superstitious reverence for the Kaaba, otherwise the Toba, after conforming to the law of Moses, would not have shown at this mark of respect. Moreover, there is a legend that the same rabbis dissuaded the Toba from plundering the sacred place when he was treacherously advised so to do, by the Benu Hudal Arabs. I have lately perused the worship of Baalim in Israel, based upon the work of Dr. R. Dozi, The Israelites in Mecca, by Dr. H. Oort. Translated from the Dutch and enlarged with notes and appendices by the Right Reverend John William Colenso, Doctor of Divinity, Longmans. I see no reason why Mecca or Becca should be made to mean a slaughter, why the Kaaba should be founded by the Simeonites, why the Hajj should be the Feast of Trumpets, and other assertions in which everything seems to be taken for granted except etymology, which is tortured into confession. If Mecca had been founded by the Simeonites, why did the Persians and the Hindus respect it? End of footnote. And, after erecting a house for the expected prophet, he returned to his capital in Al-Yaman, where he abolished idolatry by the ordeal of fire. He treated his priestly guests with particular attention, and on his deathbed he wrote the following tetrastitch. I testify of Ahmad that he of a truth is a prophet from Allah, the maker of souls. Be my age extended into his age, I would be to him a wazir and a cousin. Then, sealing the paper, he committed it to the charge of the high priest, with a solemn injunction to deliver the letter, should an opportunity offer, into the hands of the great prophet, and that, if the day be distant, the missive should be handed down from generation to generation till it reached the person to whom it was addressed. The house founded by him at al-Medina was committed to a priest of whose descendants was Abu Ayyub the Ansari, the first person over whose threshold the apostle passed when he ended the flight. Abu Ayyub also had charge of the Toba's letter, so that after three or four centuries it arrived at its destination. Al-Medina was ever well inclined to Muhammad. Footnote 20. It is curious that Abdullah, Muhammad's father, died and was buried at Al-Medina, and that his mother Amina's tomb is at Abwa on the Medina road. Here, too, his great-grandfather Hashim married Salma al-Matadalia, before whom espoused to Ahaiha of the Aus tribe. Sheva, generally called Abd al-Mutalib, the Prophet's grandfather, was the son of Salma and was bred at al-Medina. End of footnote.
The early part of his career, the emissaries of a tribe called the Benu Abd al-Ashal came from that town to Mecca in order to make a treaty with the Quraysh, and the apostles seized the opportunity of preaching al-Islam to them. His words were seconded by Ayas bin Maz, a youth of the tribe, and opposed by the chiefs of the embassy, who, however, returned home without pledging themselves to either party. Footnote 21. Ayas bin Maz died, it is said, a Muslim. End of footnote. Shortly afterwards, a body of the Aus and the Khazraj came to the pilgrimage of Mecca. When Muhammad began preaching to them, they recognized the person so long expected by the Jews, and swore to him an oath which is called in Muslim history the first filthy of the steep. Footnote 22. Bayat al-Aqabat al-Ula. It is so called because this oath was sworn at a place called al-Aqaba, the mountain road, near Muna. A mosque was afterwards built there to commemorate the event. End of footnote. After the six individuals who had thus pledged themselves returned to their native city, the event being duly bruited about caused such an effect that, when the next pilgrimage season came, twelve, or according to others, forty persons, led by Asad bin Zarara, accompanied the original converts, and in the same place swore the second fealty of the steep. The Prophet dismissed them in company with one Musab bin Amir, a Meccan, charged to teach them the Qur'an and their religious duties, which in those times consisted only of prayer and the profession of unity. They arrived at al Medina on a Friday, and this was the first day on which the city witnessed the public devotions of the Muslims. After some persecutions, Musab had the fortune to convert a cousin of Asad bin Zarara, a chief of the Aus, Sa'ad bin Maz, whose opposition had been of the fiercest. He persuaded his tribe, the Binu Abd al-Ashal, to break their idols and to openly profess al-Islam. The next season, Musab having made many converts, some say seventy, others three hundred, marched from al-Medina to Mecca for their pilgrimage, and there induced his followers to meet the Prophet at midnight upon the steep near Muna. Muhammad preached to them their duties towards Allah and himself, especially insisting upon the necessity of warring done infidelity. They pleaded ancient treaties with the Jews of Al-Medina, and showed apprehension lest the Apostle, after bringing them into disgrace with their fellows, should desert them and return to the faith of his kinsman, the Quraysh. Muhammad, smiling, comforted them with the assurance that he was with them, body and soul, forever. Upon this they asked him what would be the reward of slain. He replied, Gardens neath which the streams flow, that is to say, paradise. Then, in spite of the advice of Al-Abbas, Muhammad's uncle, who was loud in his denunciations, they bade the preacher stretch out his hand, and upon it swore the oath known as the great fealty of the steep. After comforting them with an ayat, or Quranic verse, which promised heaven, the apostle divided his followers into twelve bodies, and placing a chief at the head of each. Footnote 23. Some Muslim writers suppose that Muhammad singled out twelve men as apostles, and called them nakil, in imitation of the example of our Saviour. Other Muslims ignore both the fact and the intention. Monsieur C. de Percival gives the names of these nakils in volume 3, page 8. End of footnote. Dismissed them to their homes. He rejected the offer made by one of the party, namely to slay all the idolaters present at the pilgrimage, saying that Allah had favoured him with no such order. For the same reason he refused their invitation to visit al Medina, which was the principal object of their mission, and he then took an affectionate leave of them. Two months and a half after the events above detailed, Muhammad received the inspired tidings that al-Medina of the Hijaz was his predestined asylum. In anticipation of the order, for as yet the time had not been revealed, he sent forward his friends, among whom were Omar, Talha, and Hamza, retaining with him Abu Bakir, 
Footnote 24. Orthodox Muslims do not fail to quote this circumstance in honour of the first caliph, upon whom, moreover, they bestow the title of Friend of the Cave. The Shias, on the other hand, hating Abu Bakr, see in it a symptom of treachery, and declare that the Prophet feared to let the old hyena, as they opprobriously term the venerable successor, out of his sight for fear lest he should act as spy to the Quraysh. The voice of history and of common sense is against the Shias. Monsieur C. de Percival justly remarks that Abu Bakr and Omar were men truly worthy of their great predecessor. End of footnote. And Ali. The particulars of the flight, that eventful accident to al-Islam, are too well known to require mention here, besides which they belong rather to the category of general than of Madinite history. Muhammad was escorted into al-Madina by one Buraydet al-Aslami, and eighty men of the same tribe, who had been offered by the Quraysh a hundred camels for the capture of the fugitives. But Buraydat, after listening to their terms, accidentally entered into conversation with Muhammad, and no sooner did he hear the name of his interlocutor than he professed the faith of al-Islam. He then prepared for the apostle a standard by attaching his turban to a spear, and anxiously inquired what house was to be honoured by the presence of Allah's chosen servant. Whichever, replied Muhammad, this she-camel, Footnote 25. This animal's name, according to some, was Al-Kaswa, the tips of whose ears are cropped. According to others, Al-Jada, one mutilated in the ear, hand, nose, or lip. The Prophet bought her for eight hundred dirhams on the day before his flight from Abu Bakr, who had fattened two fine animals of his own breeding. The camel was offered as a gift, but Muhammad insisted on paying its price, because, say the Muslim casuists, he being engaged in the work of God, would receive no aid from man. According to Monsieur C. de Percival, the Prophet preached from the back of Al-Qaswa the celebrated pilgrimage sermon at Arafat on the 8th March, A.D. 632. Is order to show me. At the last halting place, he accidentally met some of his disciples returning from a trading voyage to Syria. They dressed him and his companion Abu Bakir in white clothing, which it is said caused the people of Cuba to pay a mistaken reverence to the latter. The Muslims of al-Medina were in the habit of repairing every morning to the heights near the city, looking out for the Apostle, and, when the sun waxed hot, they returned home. One day, about noon, a Jew, who discovered their retinue from afar, suddenly warned the nearest party of Ansar, or auxiliaries of al-Medina, that the fugitive was come. They snatched up their arms and hurried from their houses to meet him. Muhammad's she-camel advanced to the centre of the then-flourishing town of Cuba, there she suddenly knelt upon a place which is now consecrated ground. At that time it was an open space, belonging, they say, to Abu Ayyub the Ansari, who had a house there near the abodes of the Benu Ami bin Auf. This event happened on the first day of the week, the twelfth of the month, Rabia al-Awal. Footnote 26. The Prophet is generally supposed to have started from Mecca on the first of the same month, on a Friday or a Monday. Footnote 26. The Prophet is generally supposed to have started from Mecca on the first of the same month, on a Friday or a Monday. This discrepancy is supposed to arise from the fact that Muhammad fled his house in Mecca on a Friday, passed three days in the cave on Jabal Sour, and finally left it for al-Medina on Monday, which therefore, according to Muslim divines, was the first day of the Hijrah. But the era now commences on the first of the previous Muharram, an arrangement made seventeen years after the date of the flight by Omar the Caliph, with the concurrence of Ali. End of footnote. June 28, AD 622, in the first year of the flight, for which reason Monday, which also witnessed the birth, the mission, and the death of the Prophet, is an auspicious day to al-Islam. 
After halting two days in the house of Kulsum bin Hadma at Kuba, and there laying the foundation of the first mosque upon the lines where his she-camel trod, the apostle was joined by Ali, who had remained at Mecca, for the purpose of returning certain trusts and deposits committed to Muhammad's charge. He waited three days longer. On Friday morning, the 16th Rabia al-Awwal, AH 1, equals 2nd July, AD 622, about sunrise he mounted al-Khaswa, and, accompanied by a throng of armed Ansar on foot and on horseback, he took the way to the city. At the hour of public prayer, footnote 27, the distance from Kuba to al-Madinah is little more than three miles, for which six hours, Friday prayers being about noon, may be considered an inordinately long time. But our author might urge as a reason that the multitude of people upon a narrow road rendered the Prophet's advance a slow one, and some historians relate that he spent several hours in conversation with the Benu Salim. End of footnote. He halted in the wadi or valley near Kuba, upon the spot where the Masjid al-Juma now stands, performed his devotions, and preached an eloquent sermon. He then remounted. Numbers pressed forward to offer him hospitality. He blessed them, and bade them stand out of the way, declaring that Al-Khazwa would halt of her own accord at the predestined spot. He then advanced to where the Apostle's pulpit now stands. There the she-camel knelt, and the rider exclaimed, as one inspired, This is our place, if Almighty Allah please. Descending from Al-Khazwa, he recited, O Lord, cause me to alight a good alighting, and thou art the best of those who cause to alight. Presently the camel rose unaided, advanced a few steps, and then, according to some returning, sat down upon her former seat. According to others, she knelt at the door of Abu Ayyab al-Ansari, whose abode in those days was the nearest to the halting place. The descendant of the Jewish high priest in the time of the Tobbers, with the apostle's permission, took the baggage off the camel and carried it into his house. Then ensued great rejoicings. The Abyssinians came and played with their spears. The maidens of the Benu Najjar tribe sang and beat their kettle drums. And all the wives of the Ansar celebrated with shrill cries of joy the auspicious event, whilst the males, young and old, freemen and slaves, shouted with effusion, Allah's messenger is come, Allah's messenger is here. Muhammad caused Abu Ayyub and his wife to remove into the upper story, contenting himself with the humbler lower rooms. This was done for the greater convenience of receiving visitors without troubling the family, but the master of the house was thereby rendered uncomfortable in mind. His various remarks about the apostle's diet and domestic habits, especially his avoiding leeks, onions, and garlic. Footnote 28. Muhammad would never eat these strong-smelling vegetables on account of his converse with the angels, even as modern spiritualists refuse to smoke tobacco. At the same time, he allowed his followers to do so, except when appearing in his presence, entering a mosque, or joining in public prayers. The pious Muslim still eats his onions with these limitations. Some sects, however, as the Wahhabis, considering them abominable, avoid them on all occasions. End of footnote. A gravely chronicled by Muslim authors. After spending seven months, more or less, at the house of Abu Ayyub, Muhammad, now surrounded by his wives and family, built, close to the mosque, huts for their reception. The ground was sold to him by Sahal and Suhail, two orphans of the Benu Najjar. Footnote 29. The name of the tribe literally means sons of a carpenter, hence the error of the learned and violent Humphrey Prido, corrected by Sahal. End of footnote. A noble family of the Khazraj. Some time afterwards, one Harisat bin al-Numan presented to the Prophet all his houses in the vicinity of the temple. 
In those days the habitations of the Arabs were made of a framework of durid or palm sticks, covered over with a cloth of camel's hair, a curtain of similar stuff forming the door. The more splendid had walls of unbaked brick, and roofs of palm fronds plastered over with mud or clay. Of this description were the abodes of Muhammad's family. Most of them were built on the north and east of the mosque, which had open ground on the western side, and the doors looked towards the place of prayer. In course of time, all except Abu Bakr, footnote 30, some say that Abu Bakr had no abode near the mosque, but it is generally agreed upon that he had many houses, one in Al-Bakr, another in the higher parts of Al-Medina, and among them a hut on the spot between the present gates called Salam and Rama. End of footnote and Ali were ordered to close their doors, and even Omar was refused the favour of having a window opening into the temple. Presently the Jews of al-Medina, offended by the conduct of Abdullah bin Salam, their most learned priest and a descendant from the patriarch Joseph, who had become a convert to the Muslim dispensation, began to plot against Muhammad. Footnote 31. It is clear from the fact above stated that in those days the Jews of Arabia were in a state of excitement, hourly expecting the advent of their Messiah, and that Muhammad believed himself to be the person appointed to complete the law of Moses. End of footnote. They were headed by Hajj bin Akhtar and his brother Yasir bin Akhtar, and were joined by many of the Aus and the Khazraj. The events that followed this combination of the Munafikan or hypocrites, under their chief Abdullah, belong to the domain of Arabian history. Footnote 32. In many minor details, the above differs from the received accounts of pre-Islamatic and early Mohammedan history. Let the blame be borne by the learned Sheikh Abd al-Haq al-Mahadis of Delhi and his compilation, the Jazab al-Kulub al-Diya al-Mahab, the drawing of hearts towards the holy parts. From the multitude of versions at last comes correctness. End of footnote. Muhammad spent the last ten years of his life at Al-Medina. He died on Monday, some say at 9am, others at noon, others a little after, on the twelfth of Rabia al-Awal in the eleventh year of the Hijra. When his family and companions debated where he should be buried, Ali advised Al-Medina and Abu Bakr, Ayesha's chamber, quoting a saying of the deceased that prophets and martyrs are always interred where they happen to die. The apostle was placed, as said, under the bed where he had given up the ghost by Ali and the two sons of Abbas, who dug the grave. With the life of Muhammad, the interest of al-Medina ceases, or rather is concentrated in the history of its temple. Since then, the city has passed through the hands of the caliphs, the sharifs of Mecca, the sultans of Constantinople, the Wahhabis, and the Egyptians. It has now reverted to the Sultan, whose government is beginning to believe that in these days when religious prestige is of little value, the great Khan's title, Servant of the Holy Shrines, is purchased at too high a price. As has before been observed, the Turks now struggle for existence in Al-Hijaz, with a soldier ever in arrears and officers unequal to the task of managing an unruly people. The pensions are but partly paid. Footnote 33 a firman from the port, dated 13th February 1841, provides for the paying of these pensions regularly. It being customary to send every year from Egypt provisions in kind to the two holy cities, the provisions and other articles, whatever they may be, which have up to this time been sent to this place, shall continue to be sent thither. Formerly the Holy Land had immense property in Egypt, and indeed in all parts of al-Islam. About thirty years ago, Muhammad Ali Pasha brought up all the waqf, church property, agreeing to pay for its produce, which he rated at five piastres the adib, when it was worth three times as much. 
Even that was not regularly paid. The Sultan has taken advantage of the present crisis to put down Waqf in Turkey. The Holy Land, therefore, will gradually lose all its land and house property, and will soon be compelled to depend entirely upon the presence of the pilgrims and the sadaka or alms, which are sent to it by the pious Muslims of distant regions. As might be supposed, both the Meccans and the Madani loudly bewail their hard fates, and by no means approve of the Ikram the modern succudanium for an extensive and regularly paid revenue. At a future time I shall recur to this subject. End of footnote. And they are not likely to increase with years. It is probably a mere consideration of interest that prevents the people rising en masse and reasserting the liberties of their country. And I have heard from authentic sources that the Wahhabis look forward to the day when a fresh crusade will enable them to purge the land of its abominations in the shape of silver and gold. The Masjid al-Nab, or Prophet's Mosque, is the second in al-Islam in point of seniority, and the second, or, according to others, the first in dignity, ranking with the Kaaba itself. It is erected around the spot where the she-camel al-Kaswa knelt down by the order of heaven. At that time the land was a palm grove in a mirbad, or place where dates are dried. Muhammad, ordered to erect a place of worship there, sent for the youths to whom it belonged, and certain ansar or auxiliaries, their guardians. The ground was offered to him in free gift, but he insisted upon purchasing it, paying more than its value. Having caused the soil to be levelled and the trees to be felled, he laid the foundation of the first mosque. In those times of primitive simplicity its walls were made of rough stone and unbaked bricks. Trunks of date trees supported a palm-stick roof, concerning which the archangel Gabriel delivered an order that it should not be higher than seven cubits, the elevation of Moses's temple. All ornament was strictly forbidden. The answer, or men of al-Medina, and the Muhajirin, or fugitives from Mecca, carried the building materials in their arms from the cemetery al-Bakia, near the well of Ayyub, north of the spot where Ibrahim's mosque now stands, and the apostle was to be seen aiding them in their labours and reciting for their encouragement, O Allah, there is no good but the good of futurity, then have mercy upon my answer and Muhajirin. The length of this mosque was fifty-four cubits from north to south, and sixty-three in breadth, and it was hemmed in by houses on all sides save the western. Till the seventeenth month of the new era, the congregation faced towards the northern wall. After that time, a fresh revelation turned them in the direction of Mecca, southwards, on which occasion the archangel Gabriel descended and miraculously opened through the hills and wales a view of the Kaaba, that there might be no difficulty in ascertaining its true position. After the capture of Kaaba in AH7, the Prophet and his first three successors restored the mosque, but Muslim historians do not consider this a second foundation. Muhammad laid the first brick, and Abu Huraira declares that he saw him carry heaps of building materials piled up to his breast. The caliphs, each in the turn of his succession, placed a brick close to that laid by the Prophet and aided him in raising the walls. Al-Tabrani relates that one of the Ansar had a house adjacent which Muhammad wished to make part of the place of prayer. The proprietor was promised in exchange for it a home in paradise, which he gently rejected, pleading poverty. His excuse was omitted, and Osman, after purchasing the place for 10,000 dirhams, gave it to the apostle on the long credit originally offered. This mosque was a square of a hundred cubits. Like the former building, it had three doors, one on the south side, where the Mirab al-Nabawi, or Prophet's niche, now is, another in the place of the present Bab al-Rama, and the third at the Bab Osman, now called the Gate of Gabriel. Instead of a Mirab or prayer niche, footnote 34, 
The Priyanesh and the Minaret both date their existence from the days of Al-Walid, the builder of the third mosque. At this age of their empire, the Muslims had travelled far and had seen art in various lands. It is therefore not without a shadow of reason that the Hindus charged them with having borrowed their two favourite symbols and transformed them into an arch and a tower. End of footnote. A large block of stone directed the congregation. At first it was placed against the northern wall of the mosque, and it was removed to the southern when Mecca became the Qibla. In the beginning the Prophet, while preaching the Qutbah or Friday sermon, leaned when fatigued against a post. Footnote 35 The Ustwanat al-Hanana, or weeping post. End of footnote. The Mamba. Footnote 36 as usual, there are doubts about the invention of this article. It was covered with cloth by the Caliph Osman, or, as others say, by al-Muawiyah, who, deterred by a solar eclipse from carrying out his project of removing it to Damascus, placed it upon a new framework, elevated six steps above the ground. Al-Mahdi wished to raise the mamba six steps higher, but was forbidden so to do by the Imam Malik. The Abbasides changed the pulpit and converted the Prophet's original seat into combs, which were preserved as relics. Some historians declare that the original mamba was burnt with the mosque in AH 654. In Ibn Jubayr's time, AH 580, it was customary for visitors to place their right hands upon a bit of old wood inserted into one of the pillars of the pulpit. This was supposed to be a remnant of the weeping post. Every sultan added some ornament to the mamba, and at one time it was made of white marble, covered over with a dome of the eight metals. It is now a handsome structure, apparently of wood, painted and gilt of the usual elegant form, which has been compared by some travellers with the suggester of Roman Catholic churches. I have been explicit about this pulpit, hoping that next time the knotty question of apostolic seats comes upon the tapis, our popular authors will not confound a curile chair with a Muslim mamba. Of the latter article, Lane, Modern Egyptians, Chapter 3, gave a sketch in the interior of a mosque. End of footnote. Or pulpit was the invention of a Medina man of the Benu Najah. It was a wooden frame, two cubits long by one broad, with three steps, each one span high. On the topmost of these the Prophet sat when he required rest. The pulpit assumed its present form about AH 90, during the artistic reign of Al-Walid. In this mosque, Muhammad spent the greater part of the day. Footnote 37. The Prophet is said to have had a dwelling house in the Ambaria, or western quarter of the Manaka suburb, and here, according to some, he lodged Mariah, the Coptic girl. As pilgrims do not usually visit the place, and nothing of the original building can be now remaining, I did not trouble myself about it. End of footnote. With his companions, conversing, instructing, and comforting the poor, hard by were the abodes of his wives, his family, and his principal friends. Here he prayed at the call of the azan, or devotion cry, from the roof. Here he received worldly envoys and embassies, and the heavenly messages conveyed by the archangel Gabriel, and within a few yards of the hallowed spot he died and found a grave. The theatre of events so important to al-Islam could not be allowed, especially as no divine decree forbade the change, to remain in its pristine lowliness. The first caliph contented himself with merely restoring some of the palm pillars which had fallen to the ground. Omar, the second successor, surrounded the Hujra, or Ayesha's chamber, in which the Prophet was buried, with a mud wall, and in AH 17 he enlarged the mosque to 140 cubits by 120, taking in ground on all sides except the eastern, where stood the abodes of the mothers of the Muslims. 
Footnote 38. Meaning the prophets fifteen to twenty-five wives. Their number is not settled. He left nine wives and two concubines. It was this title after the Quranic order, chapter 33, verse 53, which rendered their widowhood eternal. No Arab would willingly marry a woman whom he has called mother or sister. End of footnote. Outside the northern wall he erected a sufia called Al-Batha, a raised bench of wood, earth or stone, upon which the people might recreate themselves with conversation and quoting poetry, for the mosque was now becoming a place of peculiar reverence to men. Footnote 39. Authors mention a place outside the northern wall called Al-Sufa, which was assigned by Muhammad as a habitation to houseless believers, from which circumstance these paupers derived the title of Ashab al-Sufa, Companions of the Sofa. End of footnote. End of chapter 17, part 1.